that's one thing that people get confused about a lot when when you're talking about white evangelicals. What they experience as a loss of liberty is in reality a loss of power. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car? Or in a jailhouse from the cops? If power is the ability to affect reality or influence our surroundings, what are the implications for Christians who feel like the world around them is changing and we're losing cultural power? What does it look like to embrace the way of Jesus and his approach to power in this cultural context? Today, David French is back with us, helping us understand the role of power in our shifting cultural and political moment. David French is a Christian and political commentator, journalist, and podcaster at The Dispatch, among other outlets. Stay with us. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Well, David French, welcome back to Everything Just Changed. It's great to have you back with us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be back. Excellent. I we, we should probably ask you what the, the technical definition is and like what qualifies as friend of the pod, um, <laughs> because having you on now, like it would just be really helpful and cool for us to be able to say, yeah, Dev- David French, friend of the pod. Um, so <laughs> is there a, is there like a technical definition or is that just oh, like totally the eye it, of the beholder? There's totally no technical definition, but whatever the definition is, multiple pod guest fits in the definition. So excellent. <laughs> you know, we don't have to draw the outer boundaries of the lines. We know that multiple guest is quote friend of the pod, but I, I use it with my podcast with Sarah Isger. Um, we use it to describe people that we know, listen and like it. We use it to describe anybody who's ever been on it. We Excellent. even use it to describe people that we suspect listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really yeah. flexible definition. Then. That's, that's a great. Flexible, but we're pretty sure that they listen. And so I'll just go ahead and call them friend of the pod. And if, Perfect. if if they tell me not, I, I'll retract. But <laughs> excellent. Well, that's that's uh, that's super helpful. And I, I want to ask the most important question first uh, as we jump into this. Is and you mentioned advisory opinions already. If if advisory opinions is the flagship dispatch podcast, mm-hmm. what then is the good faith podcast going to be in relation to the dispatch? Because well, see, yeah, that's a great question because I actually mentioned that. It w- so Curtis Chang and I, Curtis Chang is great guy, a uh, former pastor I've known for years. He's uh, affiliated with Fuller Seminary. He's affiliated with Duke Divinity. He's one of the architects behind a, uh, called, a group called Christians in the Vaccine trying to get people to take a life-saving vaccine. (laughs) Amazing that we had to do that um, to form groups like that, but we did. And really tremendous guy. So we're starting a podcast called Good Faith. And uh, I was actually talking to him about it. And I used the phrase flagship podcast to describe the other podcast I'm a part of, (laughs) Advisory Opinions. And he objected. And I said, look, you got to earn it. It's not like... (laughs) you don't That's just start a podcast and call it the flagship podcast. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just, it's very kind of you to to lend your your influence to Jonah in that way too. So um, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I'm I'm excited to to start listening to that. Um, we're talking about power today. I'm actually going to 
pass it off to Bryce to tee it up. Uh, our first questions here. Yeah. So David, we are in the middle of a series where we're talking about power because um, as pastors, Brad and I are realizing that we are navigating these issues all of the time and power has just become such a contentious issue uh, in the last several months. And so we're talking with a number of different authors and theologians and leaders. Uh, and so I want to just sort of ask you a question. We're asking everybody as we're talking with them, what is your working definition of power from a distinctly Christian perspective? Oh, from a distinctly Christian perspective, what is my Yeah, working? like what are we talking about when we're talking about power but but how does how do we think about that as a as Christians especially? Well, you know, I think of power in sort of different components. There's a certain kind of power that is coercive power. In other words, the ability to make you do what you would not otherwise do, or what you would affirmatively reject. And so, you know, when you're talking about authoritarian governments, you are talking about a, a often a particular kind of exercise of power that is coercive power. This is often the exercise of law, you know, a speed limit is a form of the exercise of power. I would not ordinarily confine my speed to X limit at any given stretch of road, but there's a, a mm-hmm. form of power exercised over me, however mm-hmm. spottily that might be. So <laughs> there is a, you hope you're right. Exactly. <laughs> there's a, so there's a coercive power, but there's, you know, other, many other forms of power, you know, there's in, there's a, you know, to use a term for like uh, from social media, an influencer, an Instagram influencer, they have a degree of power, although influence is more is sort of the better word, but that is a form of power, the power to influence, the power to persuade, hmm. to change minds. That can be extraordinarily powerful, in some ways more powerful than coercive power itself. Moral authority, the you know, the power of an example. I mean, these are all different ways in which to various degrees of coercion versus persuasion, we are sort of taught or mandated to change course. Hmm. Um, and and I think of of the influence of power as an is a ch- power is in many ways a, a change agent. A change agent. Uh, I would drive faster, but for the exercise of power, I would would not buy that Dwayne the Rock Johnson collection uh, backpack, which I did buy. <laughs> Um, but for the influence, yeah, you look like it for, if for, for people just listening, it looks like he's actually pointing to something in the room he's in. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's downstairs, but, okay. um, yeah, but I wouldn't have bought that Dwayne the Rock Johnson collection backpack until I saw the awesome influential power of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, one of the great living Americans, um, <laughs> showing me that that is in fact the better way to travel. And he's correct. So <laughs> There's so many different kinds of it. And and this actually gets to some of the debates that I know we're going to be talking about, about liberalism and illiberalism. Yeah. Illiberalism often in, is heavily weighted towards the kind of a power that we're talking about exercise of raw authority hmm. and what that does to a society, whereas a classical liberal society is much more focused on different kinds of exercises of power and ultimately says in fact, the the sovereign himself, the the head of state, head of government, only can exercise power with the consent of the governed. And so, um, these different forms of power, I think, are very, very relevant as we think about you know law, culture, etc. Okay, so I, I guess I got to say you have the, uh, have had the most unique um, 
kind of answer to that question <laughs> so far. Nobody else has quoted uh, or referenced Dwayne the Rock Johnson yet. Well, so, you yeah, know. to their loss. Um, <laughs> it's just in a roundabout way of flexing that he did, in fact, tweet at me on a couple of occasions. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I just work. I can work that in seamlessly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, David, in, in your recent article at the Dispatch, a Christian defense of American classical liberalism, you make the strong argument that classical liberalism is, you know, to put it in my own words, essentially an approach to the stewardship of social and political power that is grounded in a realistic but also a Christian view of both the worth and the sinfulness of human beings. Can you maybe um, summarize your thesis there for us briefly? Yeah. So I think there's sort of there, the let's deal with worth and sinfulness. So one of the foundational texts of American classical liberalism, and by the way, I, you know, I, I was very specific, I American classical liberalism, Mm. there are other forms of small L liberalism that I'm less enamored with. You know, there were two, two uh, revolutions that occurred within a few years apart, the American and the French, and they're very different, mm. um, mm-hmm. very different. So let's deal with um, these words. We're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it goes on in the declaration to declare that this is one of the, one of the reasons, if not the principal reason governments were instituted amongst men is to protect these liberties. It's like a, the American mission statement, sort of the way I you remember how Google for a while had a mission statement, don't be evil, you know, that's not a policy. It's a it's a mission statement. Yeah. And then you have to put that mission statement into policy language. And the Bill of Rights, for example, is one of the policy uh, amplifications of this fundamental mission statement. And And the point that I made in the piece is that this mission statement really, in a concrete way, articulates the dignity and worth of the individual, of the individual mm-hmm. human being as a human being created in the image of God. And perhaps even better than the mission statement, that broad statement, the Bill of Rights does it in a very concrete way. It sort of says, here are the manifestations of human dignity, the ability to speak, the ability to act in accordance with your deepest beliefs, the ability to be free of cruel and unhuman punishment, the idea that I can be a minority of one and all of the power of the state can come against me, but the state has to can't do anything without due process of law, that that I'm going to have the ability to assert certain claims and defenses that the state's going to have to overcome before the state can touch me and deprive me of my liberty. All of these things are powerful declarations of human dignity. And I'll give you an example of a situation that was just talked about this week in the Supreme Court. You have a, a condemned man in Texas mm. who wants his pastor to be in the room with him when he dies, praying with him and just touching his foot, laying hands on his, his feet. Now, does this condemned man have some sort of constituency? No, he's done terrible things. He's done terrible things. Is he popular? No, he's not popular. <laughs> Is this request for human dignity in this ultimate moment something that our Constitution should protect and ideally does protect? Yeah, yeah. That's So here you have sort of a minority of one in his a, a person who's done terrible things, but still possesses inherent dignity mm-hmm. and still possesses inherent dignity. And to me, that's a very poignant and tough and complex way of describing sort of the way in which our constitution protects human dignity. Our classical liberal structure protects human dignity at its best. Now we know 
that it has not always done so. Sure. (laughs) But the principles in the Bill of Rights, the principles in the Declaration of Independence have been deeply at odds with the oppressive portions of American history. So that's the human dignity portion. The human sinfulness portion is the way is not just is is kind of expressed in some of these same provisions that defend human dignity. Um, this protection of the right of free speech, the protection of due process, all of that depends on, in many ways, an understanding of the frailty and fallibility of those who are in power. Mm. The mm-hmm. inability and the difficulty of us to be our ability to discern discern truth or guilt or innocence, and the spread of power amongst different branches of government is a demonstration of the way in which power corrupts, and we're prone to be corrupted by concentrated power. And so, um, you know, in Federalist Fifty One, Madison very famously said, "Based, you know, if we're if if men could be angels and if we could be governed by angels, none of this stuff we're doing would necessarily would be necessary. Mm-hmm. We know men aren't angels. And mm. in Federalist 10, Madison, keenly aware of the ability of people of violent faction to separate and divide, um, articulated a vision of American pluralism that said what we're trying to do is create a situation where different factions can each thrive, all can thrive. In this, and that's a recognition of the fallenness of man. That there is no ruler who's going to be wise enough and just enough to discern all of the truth that is necessary to discern, and there is no institution or branch of government that is collectively going to be wise enough or just enough to create to possess all of the power. And one last thing on this very long filibustery monologue answer. <laughs> no, this is good. Is that, you know, when you've seen other revolutions, I mean, it was the lack of check on power and mm. some of the manifestations on the French revolution that led to, you know, the reign of terror. Mm. Um, and so we built into the beginning a check on power. And, and one of the things that's causing our classical liberal structure to strain right now is the way in which we have, neglected that wisdom and have allowed the executive to accumulate more power than the executive was ever intended to possess. Hmm. Okay. So if, if liberal liberalism, then if I can summarize is, is an attempt to protect human dignity while also protecting against human sinfulness and keeping power in check, what then is illiberalism and how does it misuse power? Yeah. So I think one of the good ways of distinguishing between liberalism and illiberalism is that liberalism is essentially right there. When you really drill down to it at fundamental levels, liberalism is rights-based. It says that I, as a human being, I possess certain liberties. Now the full scope and extent of those liberties can be a matter of subject, uh, you know, at where do we draw those lines and how, how much autonomy do we have? Those are subjects of discussion and debate and, Mm -hmm even in classical liberal structures, but essentially there is a, uh, a foundational element of rights-based respect for human autonomy and individual autonomy. Illiberalism, on the other hand, really places the locus of power and influence. It, it, what, illiber- Ill, what illiberalism does is essentially places the authority, um, the ultimate authority, much more in the hands of the state. It is not a rights-based structure. It uh, that doesn't mean there aren't rules. It doesn't mean that there isn't a, some degree of rule of law in illiberal structures. Often, illiberal structures are very, very rules based. But 
the uh, the distinction between liberalism and illiberalism i think is in many ways is to is there a firewall in liberalism there's often a firewall against the power of the state hmm. in illiberalism there is not that firewall that the state has much more ability to infringe upon individual autonomy so that's interesting i would not have um i would have not come to that conclusion that it's not rights rights based because our rights is often what seems to be cited by whether you're talking about illiberalism on the left or the right. It is for the sake of rights that they we want destroy to rights. concentrate that power. Yeah. Is, <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't yeah. that. But so illiberalism often will speak the language of rights, but it's also the, it's it's much more often the language of power. OK, so there's hmm. a difference between power and liberty. So I. I, if I have power, I experience it as liberty. I get to do what I want. I have the ability to do what I want. So if I'm the sovereign, Interesting. I have a lot of power, and I experience that power as freedom, okay? But that's not really what liberty is. Liberty, I believe, is what you exercise against power. So the reason, you know, so if you're in, when you have a winners and losers sort of illiberal structure, you can have entire segments. Let's talk about Jim Crow South. Jim Crow South deeply a liberal society, deeply liberal, but also sure. saturated in rights talk. Yeah. Right. Um, the rights of white people, the, the, you know, the authority, the rights and the liberties of white people, but it's still deeply a liberal. And what the white people in the South and Jim Crow South weren't exercising so much, wasn't so much liberty as power and authority. Hmm. And, so there was no environment of liberty truly in the in the Jim Crow South because it where were the rights of black Americans there? There were none. There were none. There had no rights. They had no liberties. So I think one of the differences between a concept, a healthy concept of liberty versus power is people with power experience freedom. But that's not the same thing. Liberty is something liberty as conceived in the Declaration and the Bill of Rights is something that I can exercise even when I have no power. Think mm. of this condemned man in Texas. Okay, one of the most powerless human beings on the, in the entire United States. But his case is being heard in the highest court in the land. Hmm. Why? Because he's appealing to liberty, even when he has no power. But hmm. that's one thing that people get confused about a lot when when you're talking about like uh, white evangelicals, what they experience as a loss of liberty is in reality a loss of power. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So re religious liberty has never been more protected under law than it is right now in the United States. But white evangelicals and white Protestants have less power than they used to have. So think about this. Like what was an apex moment of power for white Protestants in the U.S.? It would have been prohibition, right? How okay. much more power do you need to have as a religious movement is able to pass a constitutional amendment sure. to ban booze? I mean, that's a lot of power. Yeah. But was America a land of religious liberty at that point? Well, ask Catholics. Blaine yeah. amendments were being passed in state constitutions hmm. that were explicitly targeted against Catholics. Ask black Protestants how much religious, how much liberty were they enjoying at that time? But so often what ends up happening, and when we think about the past, what we consider lost liberty 
is in reality lost power. Now, it's not to say religious liberties aren't, there aren't certain areas of attack against religious liberties. Absolutely, there are. But we need to distinguish between liberty and power because what a lot of people lament in the evangelical world isn't so much lost liberty as lost power. You know, I, that makes, I've never thought about this before. And this, I don't know if this is a, a precursor or maybe something that fuels illiberalism. Um, I know anxiety and fear fuels illiberalism, that's for sure. But would it be safe to say that a little illiberalism becomes possible or even attractive um, if you think that you have a right to exercise power over someone else, and that is actually the means of your own liberty? Like th- that we can't actually have liberty unless we are exercising some kind of right to have power over somebody. Like, is that yeah. part of, is that underneath what you're describing? Well, so I think there's a couple of things. So one is, you know, let's go back and use again the, the South. Why did so many non-slave owning soldiers fight for the Confederacy? Okay. So why, why would people die by the tens and hundreds of thousands when they didn't own slaves, mm-hmm. the vast majority of, of soldiers who wore grade didn't own slaves. Now, okay, this is a complicated answer. Some of it's as simple as there's an invading army in my state, you know, sure. like there, some of it's that, but also there's social structures, you know, and, and there, when you talk about the end of slavery, that would have been the disruption that would represent the disruption of a social structure and a percent, uh, and, and for, Many people, a loss of potential loss of status, a, a, a potential upset of the social order and social status. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why you'll have, you know, sometimes even folks that would you not you would not call powerful in other circumstances or even privileged in other circumstances. Yeah, because be, it's, it's it's relative. <laughs> it's relative. Yeah, it's relative. Absolutely. But then, but then that's one. Let, let's just put that over in one corner. And But then here's another one. And this sort of goes to, I don't know if you've ever heard sort of the phrase, error has no rights, um, no. which, which mm. is, a, um, it's a real, it's a, 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 if I'm not mistaken, a, and I'm sure some listeners will correct me if I am, but it's essentially origins with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. And so if I believe, and I know in my heart, something is true, this is where you get a lot of threats to free speech. Uh-huh. If I know something is true. What benefit is there in letting you say something wrong? If what I believe is true and good and beautiful and right and correct and best for human flourishing, what benefit is there to anyone around us to hear your wrongness? Okay. And so a lot of what you see in a lot of the modern, more conservative liberalism is they'll say, we know what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, and we know what is evil and what is ugly and what is awful. And so if you're talking about a classical liberal structure, what that classical liberal structure doesn't just require me to sort of tolerate that, that evil and ugliness existence. It uses the instrument of law to preserve and to protect the ability to spread and disseminate what is evil and ugly and and so that's where you get a lot of this is so, and this is something in all of my arguments about free speech on campus, that's what we're getting at. Yeah. That's, that's the crux of it because that people will say, well, I know if I know something is wrong, why, what, 
why should I let people spread the wrongness? Man, see, that's it's, super, yeah. that's so interesting because <laughs> one of the things I was, I was most excited to ask you about um, is Bryce and I, I feel like maybe early this summer uh, started processing and talking about noticing and and it seems like the polarization that we're seeing happen across culture and society right now is no longer kind of primarily on a left and right axis, but more of a uh, a classically liberal or illiberal axis that mm-hmm. says like the, the divides there seem to be actually maybe more pronounced than uh, than left and right. And that has made for some very interesting and strange bedfellows, right? Yes. Um, like even just using kind of some of your own involvements as an example. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly, are you, you're on the board or in an advisory capacity with uh, for Yasha Monk's uh, persuasion, persuasion community, yes. uh-huh. uh, which is fantastic, and and I love. Uh, I mean, his his whole ha- attitude and posture is is great. And I highly recommend his podcast um, for anybody listening. Uh, but then, uh, just this week, I uh, w- have been turned on to Blocked and Reported, and yeah. Jesse Singal uh, actually cites and says that one of the Dispatch podcast interviews that you, I think it was you and uh, Sarah Isger did with a um, uh-huh. a dad in Loudoun County, Virginia, yeah. about all the school CRT brouhaha, like he says, that's essential listening. Yeah. And they're they're... Yasha Monk is left of center and Jesse Single and Katie Herzog are, are significantly more than left of center. <laughs> yeah. And, but there is a, there is a something just total opposite of what you just described as error has no right, right. uh, happening there. It's one, it's really refreshing. It's kind of like, oh, wow. Hey, like, you know, you just saw somebody, uh, you know, at the grocery store and you run into them. It's like, oh, this is great. You're, we're we're yeah. in the same place. But like, is that. Is that the fruit of what I w- what we have been noticing in terms of where the divide primarily is? And that's kind of forcing some people who maybe wouldn't be yeah. in the same group or crowd together? Oh, completely. Because what's in what's happening is, so the traditional culture war kind of would work like this. The traditional culture war would be, we agree on the general structure of American society. We agree on the general structure of our liberties, but we're fighting over the extent of them. Hmm. So- um, how much gun control is too much gun control, for example. Mm, okay. um, you know, what? how much of a tax rate, how much government intervention into the healthcare arena is too much government intervention? You know, and these are questions that are very, very important and they're often very, very contentious. Um, we are very used to being in our respective corners uh, about these issues, but all kind of conducted under an umbrella understanding of what our government is, what the structure of the government is, the separation of powers, individual, the importance of individual liberty. Now, again, we're arguing about how is, is the sphere of protection for religious liberty as big as a basketball or is it as big as a beach ball? You know, like, <laughs> but we know there's a sphere of protection. Well, so, who's liberty? Um, and, and so, you know, now what we're increasingly seeing is a challenge to sort of that system the intellectual and practical and political elements of that system itself. And so all of a sudden, a lot of folks who would be fighting with each other over gun control, for example, are turning around and going, holy cow, we can't have people storming the Capitol. Holy smokes, (laughs) we can't have people, we can't have this cancel culture that is saying that you can't even have a conversation about a tough issue mm, that there's mm-hmm. only one side 
And so I was talking to a good friend of mine, a, a new friend I've just met in the in the Trump era, and we've become quite close and we're really different. And we're really different. And I remember saying to him, you know, you know how I know we're going to kind of have won this battle to preserve liberalism? And he's like, how's that? And I said, when we get in a shouting match over gun control. <laughs> because yeah, like it would be great to get to that that argument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because we're sitting here now with the yeah. exact the, with the very structure and fundamental understanding of what this republic is supposed to be is increasingly mm. in contention. And it almost feels like a a six weeks of arguing about how about the extent of background checks feels like almost like a frivolity by comparison. Oh man. I, I mean, mm. well, and everything you're describing, what you know, Bryce and I as as pastors, like we the idea that these kinds of divides and polarizations and arguments and vitriol happening on the national stage, like that's not new. Uh right. you know, that's been percolating for a long time. Uh, and it's never really been good, honestly, mm. but it feels like there has been a, uh, a tipping point in the last few years where that same dynamic is now happening, not just maybe between institutions, but within institutions. Yeah. And like, if, if, if that isn't, if we're not crazy for, for feeling that way, like what, what, what changed? Is it just a critical mass thing or, or oh, was there I a sw switch that flipped? No, I don't think it's a switch. I think it's like um, a slowly rising tide, and the slowly rising tide is a tide of animosity, of hmm. of of anger, is the best way to describe it. So, if you look at the last thirty years of American life, um, what you will see is kind of a stock ticker moving like a up and down, but generally moving hmm. up trend in just raw animosity not just amongst elites, so to speak, mm. um, which we can have that whole elite conversation, <laughs> but only from, else a, is. only from a cracker barrel. Um, <laughs> so if instead of the, the, so what you've had is a stock ticker of, of animosity going up, not just at elite, but at the mass level so that Americans, if they're, if somebody's a Republican, they have, overwhelmingly negative views of Democrats. Yeah. And mm -hmm. if somebody's a Democrat, they have overwhelmingly views, oh, negative views of Republicans. And so what that has created, and I kind of have, uh, I've tried to sort of, how do I define what this means? So we're used to dealing with a kind of utopianism that, utopianism is very dangerous because, you know, it's, if you believe you have the way to build a perfect society, history teaches us that you'll bulldoze almost anybody to try to get there. So, but a lot of utopianism, when you think of utopianism, it's this sort of, I'm building a shining city on a hill kind of utopianism. What we also have is what I would call a negative utopianism. Mm. And then as, that is, I am destroying Carthage and salting the earth so that it may never. And so that's become a lot of a modern American politics is this, I offer a way not to build the perfect shining on the hit city on the hill, but the final defeat of the hated oh, foe. Well, I mean, mm. what you're describing gets back to the anthropological side that you were talking about at the very beginning mm. of this, right? It, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I've always been, uh, I, I, Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions was required reading in my Christian ethics class in seminary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his unconstrained versus const constrained vision uh, are pretty pa good parallels to a 
you know, an optimistic or a, a realistic slash pessimistic view of human nature. And it feels like it used to be that those were spread pretty evenly. Like you would either yeah. think pretty uh, well or optimistically or pessimistically about all human beings. But it seems maybe the switch then is that both sides started seeing themselves way too optimistically and the other ones, the other side way too pessimistically. And that is what makes that's the permission structure. I would even say worse. It's worse. Oh boy. I don't even have to view my side as all that optimistic. They're uh, just optimistically. Worse. I just have to view them. If I view them sufficiently negatively, hmm. arguments about my own side are just beside the point and a distraction and even treason from the primary objective. So one of the things that is incredibly well, here's one of the first things you'll note about fights over wokeness. Okay. So the church right now has an enormous number of people who are very anti-woke, mm -hmm. okay? So anti-wokeness is a huge element right now in the more politically-minded parts of the church. Mm -hmm. You will rarely hear somebody who's all in on anti-wokeness talk in any sort of way about what their vision is for education what their mm. vision is for addressing the historic yeah. legacy of yeah. American racism, what their vision is for. But you will hear them talk constantly about how bad the left is. Yeah, yeah. And so if I, if I am in the grips of the negative utopianism, which we can summarize as Carthage, Delinda Est, then, if, and that's probably not how you pronounce the Latin, but Carthage shall be destroyed, you know, what's the... Anything other, any conversation, yeah, well, yeah. any conversation other than the process of destroying Carthage is a distraction. Oh, man. It's a total yeah. distraction. And That's so, not sustainable. <laughs> no, it's not sustainable because guess what? Carthage, you can't destroy it. You know, you're not going to wipe Brooklyn off the map, okay? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not, the San Francisco Unified yeah. School District is still going to be there. And and so what ends up happening is you have this continual, furious battle where if anyone is sort of saying, whoa, we're going too far, traitor, traitor. Mm. And, and this is something that you're, you know, this is something, for example, um, you know, you, you then become, get on this sort of search and destroy mission. The anti-wokeness brigades then get on a search and destroy mission. But because anti-wokeness, its political power is not concentrated in San Francisco. Its political power is not concentrated in Brooklyn. Where is it concentrated? Texas, Tennessee. Hmm. Well, is there a big pile of wokeness in public schools in Texas and Tennessee? Maybe in some isolated school districts, maybe, but generally, no. So what do you end up doing when you're on your anti-wokeness patrol? Well, you'll find a Norman Rockwell painting of desegregation. And that gives mm. me bad feels seeing that. And I don't like that. Or I, I, there's a little book called Ruby Bridges Goes to School that's in, taught in our local school districts. Well, that makes me feel bad too. And I'm going to, in the in the interest of the anti-wokeness to, to defeat this horrible in, in, enemy, I'm going to try to eliminate that. Or there's 850 mm. books that a state legislature, legislator in Texas was trying to do a search and destroy mission on. Now, that's not to say then, though, that Loudoun County is awesome, or the San Francisco Unified School District has got it going on great, or that wokeness 
you know, that toxic and illiberal elements of wokeness aren't quite destructive. It's just that when your position is so oppositional, um, really a positive agenda in that circumstance or, or debating it or trying to ask if it exists is a distraction from the fundamental mission. Hmm, man. So uh, David, I'm, I'm curious to, I want, I want to see if I can ask a question to see if we can like figure out what the, the root of the divide here is between uh, sort of the uh, liberalism and liberalism. And one of the things I've noticed for a long time, but has kind of become my like hobby horse in the last couple of months is just responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, you know, the, the, the talk about rights divorced from any sense of responsibility yeah. seems to be a big part of this. And when we're thinking about toward to, to what ends, um, you know, power, but towards, to, to, towards what ends. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I don't know, I guess well, so, <laughs> thoughts on that maybe. Yeah. So what, what we have to realize, and this is why, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, a conversation I have, cause I live in a very, very red part of the country and in rights and responsibilities, there is a social compact here. Okay. So mm. the social compact essentially works like this, which is we, the government are going to protect your rights. You, the people, should exercise and need to for this whole thing to work to exercise those rights virtuously. That's how this has to work. Now, that doesn't mean you, the people, have to be perfect. You don't. Mm-hmm. The system is built with a lot of give to it. But, you know, um, as John Adams said in the famous, th- this is the concept of ordered liberty. So I yeah. think of when you think of ordered liberty, I think of two great documents. One's much more famous than the other one, but they're both great documents. One is, the Declaration of Independence, we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. The other one is John Adams' letter to the Massachusetts militia, where he's writing after the Constitution. And he says, look, the Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And the mm-hmm. whole, But the whole letter is totally worth reading because he, he talks about how in an atmosphere, a, a society designed for liberty— there are certain virtues, uh, vices, um, that will pass through the cords of the Constitution the way a whale goes through a net, okay? And so this is this really gets to a lot of the frustration I have with ends justifies the means yeah. worldview in American politics because it breaks the system itself, because the system itself was built around these mutual obligations. I, as a citizen, have an obligation to exercise my rights virtuously. The state has an obligation to protect those rights. If I forsake virtue, if I say the ends justify the means, I'm breaking that social compact. Hmm. And so, you know, I was just at a, at a Christian university and George Fox, and I had a great question in a class we Christians talk all the time about religious liberty. Shouldn't we be talking more about religious responsibility? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I said, a hundred percent. Yes. And, and when I would do my religious liberty work, one of the things that I would sometimes say to clients is I would say, what I'm doing right now to defend your liberty is virtually meaningless in the scheme of things compared to the way in which you choose to exercise the liberty that you're going to win in this court case. That that actually gets to a, a point in your article that I, I was wanting to bring up and, and ask about because 
including the the John Adams quote, um, you said that because classical liberalism reserves so much power and autonomy to the private sphere, the virtue of private individuals and institutions is all the more vital. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I I wanted to kind of like steel man an objection uh, to what you're saying here, because uh, I think there's some validity to this and it kind of goes to what Bryce is asking about with the responsibility piece. Um, but with that John Adams quote of you, that you said earlier, our constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate government for any other. I th- one could argue that the culture wars are themselves proving that John Adams was even more prescient than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that he foresaw, for example, our institutions, which are fundamentally responsible for cultivating virtue individually and collectively. I don't think he saw them straying so much from the original mm. vision and DNA and, and if anything are actively contributing to that dynamic. And well, so if, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, we're Not talking all. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are talking about a time when there were, there were existing abolitionists at that time and we had institutions of slavery, you know, we, mm. so we, we really do kind of, um, idealize the past way too much when we talk <laughs> about American classical liberalism. Um, and so in many ways, in many ways, the institutions, American institutions are much healthier mm. than they were in, in the not too distant past. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people look back in the 1950s and they say, well, we had a, a lot healthier families. Okay. We had a Some. lot more Jim Crow. We had a lot, you know, so we, a lot of folks have this sort of halo effect around the past. And so that, that, you know, but I do agree that a lot of our institutions under, are under attack, a lot of our institutions under assault. However, I would say this, that at a time of, uh, of where we have a problem with vice, um, j- just as a pragmatic, just just let's just be pragmatic for a minute, and and we have do. Where's the virtuous leader class that's going to set us all straight? Like this is one of the things that is remarkable yeah. to me. Some of the illiberal folks. Let's just keep it very real here. <laughs> yeah, some of the most illiberal people who dec- who lament the decline of our institutions are also some of the most cruel and vicious mm. and often utterly dishonest people in American life. Hmm. You're going to fix it? I don't think so. I don't think so. Oh, yeah. There's a whole cottage industry around uh, tearing down and criticizing institutions and institutional leaders that is actually just uh, an attempt to to take the power away for themselves in a way that is actually populist. So, yeah. Well, and and a lot of the religious religious people who are illiberal are vile. Mm. Let's just Mm. be completely honest about that. There are a lot of the people who are adapting a very highly hyper-religious illiberalism are some of the most cruel and vicious and dishonest people I've ever encountered in my entire life. And that's the cure to public vice? Mm-mm. I think not. Well, I and think I think, not. I mean, isn't that so much of the criticism from non-Christians or from ex-evangelicals who are looking at the church and saying, wait, this is the solution to the... <laughs> How oh, are we going to get on board with that? Right. And then, and then there's a principled answer that goes all the way, you know, so you have the pragmatic of like, what if the wannabe tyrants are pretty awful? 
<laughs> or what if the what if the wannabe guardians of American public virtue are pretty awful on a whole lot of levels? So that's very pragmatic to which someone would say, but what about the benevolent ruler? You know, what about the benevolent ruler? <clears throat> and and you know, look, one of the interesting things that, about the history of the American experiment is that the American experiment was born out of hundreds of years of experience with established Christian religious leadership in the European continent. Hmm. The American experiment was not born out of a rejection of sort of like a whole bunch of Harvard atheists ruling mm -hmm. the place. <laughs> you know, this was um, established... Um, established churches, thoroughly Christian kingdoms. Um, they, they were so thoroughly committed to their various religious uh, points of view that they would go to war with each other over them. I mean, of course, other geopolitical issues were at stake as well. But let's not forget that American classical liberalism was born as a reaction to civilizations in Europe that were Christian kingdoms, mm -hmm. okay? And that it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't working. I mean, uh, there, there's, there's a, um, a tremendous piece, and I, I quote this in, in my American Defense of Classical Liberalism from Scott Alexander, or Defense of American Classical, Classical Liberalism by a guy who writes in their pseudonym, uh, Scott Alexander. And he says, look, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> um, classical liberalism, liberalism is not utopian. Sure. It is like yeah. this alien machinery designed to prevent war and civil war. It's an alien mm. machinery that is designed to prevent Catholics and Protestants from ripping each other to shreds, for example, just to take it from the 17th and 18th century sure. context. And there's, you know, and as he puts it, there's a few ways to sort of keep the peace. One, you know, one is like a complete and utter vanquishing of your enemies, domination through war and conquest, or keeping this alien machinery tuned very carefully. <laughs> yeah. And America is that alien machinery. It is that technology for preventing civil war. And it hasn't been perfect in our, our history, for example. But that's one of the things that, you know, I keep thinking about, especially when you're talking about religious people who want to concentrate more religious authority in the state. It's like, well, you know, are you, is your position that the first thousand plus years we tried that, we just didn't give it enough of a shot? <laughs> we, well, but things are different. We're more enlightened We're now. We're going to try harder. This time. Yeah. 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 Well, and, yeah. I, you know, the, it kind of gets to that tipping point um, fast that I was talking about earlier of, I remember there was a time gosh, it was only like five years ago, maybe not even that long, where I would remember telling people, you know what, if, if we as Christians were far more concerned about protecting the rights of others, we probably wouldn't need to be worried about somebody taking our rights away. Um, and so like, that's why the self-assertion of our own rights is actually kind of counterproductive. And I still believe, like just as a Christian, <laughs> that that is something we should do. But I mm -hmm. don't think I have hope anymore that um, that that is actually a means to turning the tide in terms yeah. of uh, of because of that tipping point. And so I think maybe like, okay, what then if we're in this place where the space that we have created for people to exercise their liberty through classical liberalism ha is now resulting with like 
maybe a cold civil cultural war. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what are the what are the tools? What are the mechanisms for reversing that momentum? Because the more it speeds up, it feels like it's it's harder and harder to slow down as we go. Yeah. So that's our boy. Please um, just solve when, it for everybody fi- right now. <laughs> when I <laughs> figure it out, I'll, I'll, when I figure it out, I'll tell you the answer. But um, here's some seeds of hope. Okay, one of the things about war of any kind, whether it's Cold War or heaven forbid, you know, hot a hot war, war's miserable. Yeah. Conflict. Hmm. There, there, it's a minority of people who thrive in conflict. Even when the conflict is is on Facebook or Twitter, much less, and it's an even smaller minority who thrive in actual armed conflict. And I might take some uh, some argument with the definition of thrive, even then. Yeah, right. Well, feel alive <laughs> and animated and full of you know. And so, what's happened is as our national conversation has become more toxic, we have seen the rise of what is called the a uh, the exhausted majority of Americans. This is something that has been tracked in the social science and it's an, a well-established constituency of Americans. And it's, it's not all moderates. Like th- this is one thing you have to, when we're talking about liberalism and illiberalism and all mm. of this stuff, we have to, a lot of it, we have to drain ourselves of the right left sure. uh, dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's not all moderates who are in this exhausted majority. It's people on the left, it's people on the right, it's people in the middle and they're sick of it. Yeah. They're sick of it. They may have different views on tax rates. They may have different views on abortion. They may have different views on guns, but they don't understand why we have to hate each other. They don't understand why uh, people can't compromise. They can't understand why people can't have conversations. They're sick of it. Mm -hmm. Now, what have they done in response to that? They've checked out. Okay. So rather than saying, exerting, like acting like the teacher in a kindergarten classroom and exerting (laughs) authority over the unruly fighting kids at at recess, they're out. They're out. And And for a lot of them, they're good, rational, often healthy reasons why they're out. So for example, I'll just take a a friend of mine who condemned the violence on January 6th on his Facebook page, um, didn't didn't condemn Trump, didn't condemn, um, you know, the stop the steal movement, just condemn the violence, almost lost his relationship with members of his family. Okay. Mm. Oh man. And you can replicate this story. You should yeah. see my email in back inbox. So in that circumstance, a lot of people I'd rather are saying, not actually. No, no offense, you, you don't. Yeah. You, you don't. Yeah. Um, Thank and, you though. <laughs> yeah. And so what ends up happening is, you then say, look, politics isn't my religion. I love my uncle. I love my aunt. I love my father, my mother, my son, my daughter. And I'm not, I'm, I'm leaving this alone. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving this alone. And, and mm-hmm. so what has ended up happening is that the people who temperamentally are more accommodating who are more open to compromise, who are more uh, sort of pacifistic in their temperament, um, uh, kind in their demeanor, are checking out. They're Mm. fleeing the scene. It doesn't mean that they don't still care about politics. It doesn't mean that they don't vote. And in fact, they do vote. And it's really interesting in the last couple of cycles how much 
the electorate has been screaming at the parties, be normal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Be Mm -hmm. normal. But then they check back out after they've given their one like barbaric yawp from the rooftops of the world saying, be normal. And then they check back out and they go to soccer practice and they do this and they do that. And then here comes the Twitter swarms. Don't be normal. (laughs) Radical. Be (laughs) radical. And so that's the dynamic. And so it's a, Good news, bad news situation. The good news is there's a majority are deeply discontent with this hostile status quo. The bad news is the operative word for them right now is exhausted. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of it is a leadership issue. Honestly, I think um, to say it's a leadership issue isn't really to articulate a plan. Because that's like yeah. saying, I'm going to be an NBA. I, I'm, I'm inheriting a struggling NBA team. What's your plan? Draft Michael Jordan. <laughs> Well, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, we, but we do have an exhausted majority. I do think that there is sorting going on and understanding of that and creative people are looking for ways to mobilize that element hmm. of American society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the path forward goes. And again, it's not to say to everyone, be moderate. No. Cause if you, if you say to everyone, yeah. be moderate, you're just saying, agree with moderates. That's not. Right. No, yeah. it's more right. just have a positive vision yeah. of any kind. <laughs> or another thing is also distinguish between ideology, ideology and temperament. Mm. Okay, so I'm I'm a quite conservative person, uh, person, quite libertarian in a lot of my views, and people would say, "But you seem moderate." Well, what they're what they're saying is, I'm I'm not. I'm like more. I'm a, I'm conservative, but I'm not angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that yeah. that the difference between temperament and ideology, what mm-hmm. we've often seen, especially and on the right and on the left, is you have to marry them. Yeah, you have to marry them. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple of kind of so what questions, and we're kind of getting into this already. But you know, at the end of the day, we are where we are culturally, mm-hmm. and. I'm curious about your thoughts on where we go from here and what hope you have going forward. And so, I, I mean, first in the realm of politics and government, gosh, I, I really am curious what your thoughts on this are. Is the emergence of a viable third party necessary to recovering classical liberalism and modeling a different approach to stewarding power in public life? Or or is there another way you can envision? Yeah, yeah. So I, there are other ways I can envision. I think a, uh, let me put it this way about a third party. I think the demand is there and the mechan, but the mechanisms for meeting that demand are, are monumentally difficult. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so, cause the system has been built around these two parties for a really, really long time. And there's a lot of ways, mm-hmm. big and small, subtle and unsubtle that we're all pushed in that to, into that binary. So is there a market? Heck yes, there's a market. Now, one of the interesting things about the American entrepreneurial spirit is we often find creative ways to fill, to you know, to meet market demand. So that's one reason why I'm not willing, mm-hmm. sitting here willing to say that third party is a pipe dream. In fact, it might be the best way out of this political mess. I mean, there has been, you know, the Republican Party was a third party. Um, right. You know, and and there can even be sh- more short lived third parties that sort of deliver a, 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 a shock of sort of sane discipline to the two parties. But there are other paths through. Um, you know, there was a time, I mean, think of it like this. 
the contrast between Nixonism and Reaganism is big. Hmm. Yeah. The time difference between the two is Not, short. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. short. And and so one of the things uh, I was listening to a great podcast with uh, Matthew Continetti and Jonah Goldberg on his Remnant Remnant podcast. And one a point Continetti made, which I think is really important, is people move on, and and they and they change. And one of the ways that and and if you're sitting here looking for some sort of thing where all of a sudden all these people who said. Yeah, I was all in for Donald Trump. I'm so very sorry about that. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Nope. No, 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 no. Here's how people change. They don't say, I was so sorry for supporting Donald Trump. I'm Let me repent publicly of that. What they say is, I'll vote for somebody different. Mm-hmm. Like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia mm. is super different from Donald Trump. Now, in some ways, he mm. might be a little bit of a unicorn because he was voted in as the um, Republican nominee through a convention that used ranked choice voting that was designed in many ways to weed out the very, very Trumpy other competitors. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of, but then he's, he's kind of put forward through these party machinations and then he outperforms Trump. Yeah. He outperforms yeah. Trump. So I'm looking at that mm-hmm. and saying, huh, it's been but like the one, one glimmer of hope over the last year. Yeah. It's like, huh, that's one data point, but I got a lot of other bad data points. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why I think we need to keep the third party conversation alive. But I, the one thing I differ, my, my friend Jonah really kicked this off in conservative circles. And the one point I disagree with him on is I think it needs to be more heterodox than simply saying we're the conservative party. Hmm the true conservative party. It can be conservative in mm-hmm. some places and more progressive in other places, but we're the, we're the, I love the name that one reader gave it the union party. I liked mm. that. I liked that. Um, yeah. Heck one may exist or some, some tiny little party called the union party may already exist, right. but well, solidarity party, right? That's, that's playing on that same, uh, oh, there is unity the Amer- togetherness aspect. There is the American solidarity party. Mm. It's a very, um, sort of uh, yeah. economic left, culturally right, trying to harness some a specific kind of like Christian populism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's kind of the, you know, broader culture, political kind of side of the thing. The other, so what question I wanted to ask you more in line uh, in the realm of the church. And so one of the realities that we're dealing with is that the church has lost cultural influence. And as we've already talked about, that means a loss of power. Uh, but we're also more more broadly, individual Christians and churches are coping with that reality really, really poorly, mm-hmm. I would say in general. Uh, some of that looks like the alliance of the Christian right to illiberalism. Mm-hmm. But for Christians who haven't maybe gone down that road, I mean, speaking personally, it can be really easy to look with judgment on Christians who have gone down yeah. that road, right? And, and sort of to ignore the fact that fear is driving a lot of what's happening in the church right now. And so I think a lot of Christians see the cultural tides changing around all kinds of issues, but, you know, human sexuality specifically, maybe. And they're afraid and they're worried about what kind of world their kids are going to live in and what kind of world their grandchildren are going to grow up in. Or a metaverse. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, well, so I, I think intellectually, I know that like as Christians, we have the resources to deal with this time because we follow a savior who says the ultimate expression of power looks like death mm-hmm. on a cross. And yet as pastors, um, we're trying to lead churches and we're trying to lead Christians who have been discipled in, in a very different understanding yeah. of power. So I, I guess I wonder if you can just help us connect the dots. Like, how do we get from the reality of where we are to where we where we need to be? Man, that's a great that's a great question. I, I think of two an Old Testament verse and a, a, a New Testament as sort of a, a good two good frames. Okay, one is method, and one is more method, and the other one is more mindset. Okay, so the the method one, let's start with that. Micah 6 8. Anybody who's read me knows I talk about Micah 6 8 till I'm blue mm-hmm. in the face. It's Love three it. inter, it's three interlocking responsibilities. Act justly. That's the one that's the easy one for the, our time. It's like, I know what's right and just and true, and I'm gonna fight for that. Got it. But then the verse keeps going. Love kindness or love mercy, depending on the translation. Okay, wait, I can't okay. So I got to act justly, but I cannot forsake mercy. And then the last one, walking humbly with the Lord your God. So acknowledging complexity, acknowledging my own fallibility, um, loving my enemies, blessing those who persecute me. And and those words about blessing those who persecute was a lot, it, persecution was a lot worse than getting knocked off Twitter. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so, <laughs> say that. so this is a kind of a methodological, I'm going to walk into the public square with humility and love for my opponents and yet still pursue what I believe is right and good and true. Then here's the mindset one. God didn't give us a spirit of fear, mm. but of power and mm. love and of sound mind. And I think we really need, a lot of us really need to just dwell and meditate on those concepts because so much of what is animating public conversation is all aimed at the spirit of fear, all aimed at the spirit of fear. How can I protect my kids? How am I going to, and then, Mm -hmm. but what are the alternatives power, but not your power, not you're going to be running stuff. Yeah. It's it's confidence in the sovereign God of the universe Mm. and my confidence in the sovereign God of the universe liberates me to love even my enemies. It liber- it's a liberating me to love even my enemies. And then the last one is, and of sound mind. My goodness, do we need that? My goodness, do we need that? And and I Sanity? think- Sanity? You're kidding. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just like not being given to the conspiracies, yeah. not, you know, I, I will talk to smart, smart, smart people who will regurgitate the craziest things that they've seen in low quality- news outlets. And, and so I think that, you know, how are we moving into this world? We're seeking justice while we're loving mercy and we're, we're humble enough to know we don't know all the answers and we need to be open to other ideas. You just connected a couple dots for me in that, like, especially because we're talking about this and applying that to this idea of, of like a lot of the fear and anxiety we're experiencing is because of a loss of cultural power. The Mm -hmm. fact that we, the white evangelical church in the U S is reacting the way that we are is itself a self own 
and a confession that we have been relying on our own power and not on God's, because you don't see the Black evangelical church in the U.S. responding to this turmoil in the way that we are. And that actually is a, that's actually, that's a, it's proving the need for everything you just described. And so I, man, I hadn't quite applied that particular facet to the cultural moment we're in. And that's so, that's super helpful. Yeah. And that spirit of fear, you know, look, I'm a dad, I have three kids and I now have a grandbaby, my goodness. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things I've always recognized is, you know, one, you know, when we're talking about power in, in a different sense from the, you know, w- where is the power, the powers in the sovereign God of the universe within the family, you know, look, if you're a mom and dad, you're still a superpower in your own home. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're, you're the superpowers in your own home. And I think we often forget that. And, mm. and we often are sort of feel as if we're captive to other powers when the, the, the ethos, everything from the, the ethos, the intellectual environment, the spiritual environment, all of these things are so much more in the hands of mom and dad than they are in the hands of Netflix or the Disney channel. In fact, even the very access to Netflix and Disney channel are in the hands of mom and dad. Just don't more give than them a smartphone TV. and you're good. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, we've, you know, we altered our approach to smartphones between our oldest two kids and our youngest. I mean, mm. but reacting to how these things are, how they're influential. And, sure. and that's not to say mm. that there's some sort of formula for, raising children that if you just get this right, then you can fend off everything in the world. There's a lot of people who made a lot of money making arguments like that, but we all know that that formulaic approach is ludicrous. Um, it's just that we, again, this goes to that spirit of fear. It goes to that spirit of fear and stop feeling helpless. Stop feeling like you're at the mercy of so many other forces. Yeah. So David, as we're um, wrapping up, we each want to just kind of ask you a, a question about encouragement. And so one of the things we've realized is about half of our audience is made up of church leaders and pastors for whom uh, life and especially ministry, I think, has turned out to be dramatically oh, different man. from what they had expected it to be. I graduated from seminary about 15 years ago, and my expectation of what pastoral ministry would be like uh, has is so dramatic. Those, those expectations are so dramatically mm. different from what the reality looks like. And so, you know, I think pastors are feeling a lot like uh, they're sort of the backstop for that lack of sound mindedness yeah. that, that you're talking about. It feels a lot more like we're trying to hold together people who are running, you know, like chickens with yeah. their heads cut off a lot of the time. What what encouragement can you offer to pastors in well, that situation? Well, you know, first, I mean, let me start with the discouragement. <laughs> <laughs> what you mean? You I mean the bad news before the good well, news. Let, let's just let, let's just get this out of the. Out. There is no formula path, uh, no formula or path past all conflict. Okay, um, so there's going to be elements in in of in any congregation that that can make, I was listening to Tim Keller the other day, talking to Tim Keller the other day. I can't remember if he said it was like, you know, it can be as low as 3% or 4% or 5% of a congregation that can dominate 90% of your mind. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. look, there's no path past that three to four to 5% or whatever, but I would say this, 
we, I don't think we can or should, or is it appropriate to put on pastors the burden of knowing everything about everything. Mm. So you don't have to know everything about mRNA vaccines. You know, that's, that's not, that's not your area. You don't know, have to know everything about police tactics and the history of race relations in America. You don't know. But what we keep doing to pastors is saying, I want to know what you think of this. And if it doesn't match my, my mm-hmm. particular position, then you've got a problem. But what, mm-hmm. what can pastors do? What can pastors do? They can do the things they're good at. And the things that they're good at are taking these verses like, you know, Micah 6.8. And teaching people and sh- and teaching people how at the soul and heart level, how they approach hmm. all of these questions. And so you don't have to be an expert in mRNA vaccines. You don't have to be an expert in chokeholds or no-knock raids. You don't have to be an expert in all of these things. But as you're a curious citizen filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God and a, a citizen who seeks to love his neighbor— if you're implanting that ethos into how we approach these very contentious topics, that's transformational. Hmm. Right there is transformational. Wow. So, you know, just let's just take, for example, does Beth Moore feel like she's hounded out of the SBC if every person who's interacting with her about roles of women, about race, and about Trump, and about sex abuse in the church is interacting with her while exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? No, it's a totally different world, right? Yeah, yeah. It's totally different. And so that is what's transformational. And that's absolutely in a, like a pastoral wheelhouse, Mm. you know, Mm. my best pastors, uh, and I've had good pastors in my life. My best pastors, honestly, I can't remember, I can't remember political conversations with them. Hmm. Like I can't, I can't remember. I, I, you know, the best, one of the best pastors I've ever had, and I don't want to say the best pastor, because one of my pastors might be listening and think, I didn't do that. <laughs> but <I can. laughs> one, one of the best pastors I've ever had, because I grew up in a church tradition that wasn't where, where I grew up in churches where the, the, we called him the pulpit mister was not pastoral. And we all know a difference between hmm. Hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, my wife had this medical procedure years ago, early in our marriage, and we just joined this church. And you know how medicine, for some sadistic reason, asked you to show up at like 4.45 a.m. for some sort of... (laughs) And so we're sitting there at like 4.45 a.m. to wait in a waiting room for an hour and a half. And and in walks my pastor at 4.45. And I was like, pastor, Hmm. why are you here? And he said, because I'm your pastor. Hmm. I was like, oh... Right. And, you know, it's that. And, and I feel like with pastors, and again, this is not a path past conflict. There's no path past some of the two to three to 4%, but man, you've got all the tools. Yeah. You've got all the tools to radically transform the way our, we approach the, the condition of our heart as we approach the toughest things in this world. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, last question is the other half of our audience. Um, and this is in a lot of ways, this is why we're having doing this mini series on the topic of power, because mm-hmm. the other half of our audience miraculously, like it's, it's actually been really amazing that these are the two halves of our audience, um, are either Christians or, or non-Christians who are like really struggling to 
feel welcome in the church because of the yeah. culture wars and the way that power is exercised in coercive ways, yeah. increasingly in some institutions and it's neglected in others, all of this. What what encouragement would you have for them who are like, man, I'm not thinking about this in terms of like vocational ministry, but just like, is there space for me? I'm worn what would out. You say? Yeah. Well, number one is we got to remember Christianity isn't Christendom. As as important and as important as the various institutions of the church are, that the a lot of what we see about scandal, a lot of what we see about leaders letting us down and disappointment, none none not only was none of this anticipated by Jesus, uh, unanticipated by Christ, it was experienced by his apostles. And mm-hmm. I, I I love this tweet that I saw, and rarely will you hear those words come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, Paul basically had two themes in his epistles. And of, of course, it's a tweet, so it's an oversimplification, caveat, caveat, but I loved it. One is, we are heirs to the unimaginable glory of God through the unfathomable grace of God. And number two was, can't you freaks act normally for five minutes? <laughs> I saw that. That's it's fantastic. so good. And so, you know, that for in a weird way, I found that like really comforting, you know, because look, I mean, this church is full of fallen people. The institutions hmm. that we create are often going to have real problems. But there is a through line there, and there's a through line of grace and love and a through line that is it, that will never, it, it's never going to disappear. I mean, mm. that's never mm. going to go away. I mean, at the end of the day, we still serve the Savior who would leave the 99 to find the one. And mm. a lot of us feel like the one mm-hmm. right now. You know, a lot of us feel like the one, and some of us kind of... You know, we're kind of are the one. And and I think the gl- great and glorious reality is that he's going to come find you. He's mm. going to come find mm. you. And and everything can be burning down all around us, and he's still going to come find you. And sometimes things do burn down all around us. And I know for the early Christians, it felt like that. I know there's mm. multiple instances in the, the history of you know, the, the, you know, the, the chosen people of God in the old Testament. I mean, my gosh, there were bonfires all around all the time, but he always finds and preserves his people. Mm. And that is a thing that just, you know, it's a, it's a truth that I try to keep front and center while I, you know, why I often feel, you know, and I'm often struck by just sense of anger and despair and sometimes kind of feeling pretty alone at this moment. Mm. Man, thanks for that. Yeah, that's a it's a very easy to forget and counterintuitive thing to remember that Christians behaving badly is actually part of how we know that we'll still be welcome to the table when we're behaving badly. <laughs> yeah. And if the freaks are welcome, then maybe freaks like me are too. So it's like we should rename first and second Corinthians Christians behaving badly. Oh. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I don't, every pastor is terrified of preaching through that because it'll both be very validating and also like, oh my God, what will come up now? Uh, 
Man, well, David, we we have gone way past time, and uh, all of it's so worth it on our end. And thank you so much for for joining us for this and talking about power, especially as someone who is navigating those uh, at scale uh, and 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 trying to think critically about how power is used well for the sake of our neighbor and and for the body of Christ. So thank you so much for for joining us, and um, yeah, hope to do it again soon. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. So normally at this point, Brad and I come back and talk about what just changed for us after this interview. But today we really want to hear from you. What changed for you after listening to our conversation with David French? Did you love it or hate it? Let us know and why at our new Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes or you can find it by searching for Everything Just Changed on Facebook. This is going to be our last episode of the year. We're taking the next couple of weeks off. We hope you have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We will be back on January 3rd talking with Dr. Diane Langberg about power and abuse. You won't want to miss that. Subscribe if you haven't already, please. Everything Just Changed is edited by Nathan Michelle. Our logo and theme music are by Danny Rankin. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards. Join us in the new year as we continue our series on power, seeking to equip leaders who just can't even anymore on everything just changed. Mm -hmm.